Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. In high school, I couldn't get up in front of a group of three or four people. I was yeah. the shyest person probably in the classroom. The crew would have accepted that good, wouldn't it? Me coming in in a helicopter every morning. But yes, I backed off and let Richard win the race because I was not going to put Osterlund on the winner's circle. I don't blame him for being mad. I don't blame him at all. But him, Maurice, they, they came after me. There's no, no question about that. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast, where this week... We have two very, very special guests to me. They are family. They are my best friends. And without them, this podcast would not be happening. I owe so much to them. You guys have heard about them, and now you're going to get to meet them through this podcast. First, we have Sandy Estep, my godmother. And we also have her son, my best friend from high school, Joe Estep. And in all seriousness, they are the ones who got me interested in racing way back when. 
Sandy, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Rick. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm doing well. I got to say this. Thank you for doing this. I know it wasn't something that you were looking forward to. I think I kind of maybe teared up a little bit and worked the waterworks a little bit, but I would never have been interested in NASCAR if it hadn't been for you two. If I hadn't been interested in NASCAR, I would have never moved to North Carolina. And if I hadn't moved to North Carolina, I obviously wouldn't have met my wife, Jeannie. And this morning, we watched two young men graduate from high school. And that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for you two. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Rick. You've done a lot for me, too. I wouldn't have been at a lot of different races and had a lot of experiences. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. And Yes, and uh, if it hadn't been for you, I would probably still be a race fan, but you got me spoiled uh, by going to the track uh, with credentials. And so just sitting in a normal seat now is not the same. Oh, well, okay. Blame it on me. Blame it on me. And Joe, I can't even remember when you and I first became friends. I first remember you, I guess, in about the ninth grade. I have blocked out junior high. Oh, well, I mean, just mentally blocked that out. That's probably why you don't remember it. I, I remember we became friends as after we got to know one another on the newspaper staff. Okay. At, at Donaldson Jr. Yeah. Uh, I was a homeroom representative for the newspaper, and you were one of the editors, I believe, at the time. Yeah. Ma- mainly because nobody else wanted to take the position. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is typical with a lot of things in junior high. I remember a lot of games of baseball being played with paper wads and rolled up newspapers and things like that. So. I have no recollection of junior high. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was so scarred by junior high that I have no recollection of and it. And I can understand that, but as time went on, we were on the newspaper staff in high school as well. Uh, and that We're all state, and, and you're, you're not. not. <laughs> Getting to the show, we're going to share the third and final segment of my interview with Dave Marcus. And <laughs> Sandy, you have a little bit of a story with Dave Marcus, and we're going to share that. And then in our second segment, we are going to talk about your interest in racing, how you got involved, how you got me involved, how Joe played into my interest in racing. The listeners of this podcast, they know of Joe and Sandy. But now they're going to be able to meet you. Don't believe anything you've heard of me in the past. Oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> no. so help us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Support him on Patreon. <laughs> so she don't have to. <laughs> He's in the will. He knows that. <laughs> Dave, you had your streak of 32 consecutive Daytona 500s broken in the year 2000. The sport was certainly changing, had already changed at that time with huge multi-car teams like Hendrick and Roush and Penske at the time was a multi-car team. How difficult was that for you? You know, it ain't difficult. They're, putting, they're giving people rides because they're ex-champions, letting them start the race. They didn't qualify for it. I qualified for mine. <laughs> I have yeah. 33 starts, and I have 32 of them consecutive. Yeah. Only one of them, 32, uh, did I get a provisional starting position. Only one. No and kidding. We didn't even know. Wow. We were loading up our equipment to go home. And Bill Gasaway come over and said, what are you doing? And I said, we're loading up. I know you want us to get out of the garage. He said, you're in the race. I said, no, I ain't. He said, yes, you are. You didn't know you had a provisional. I did not. I did not. So to my knowledge, only one time, other than that, I qualified for every one of them 32 races. Hmm. And I qualified for that one that time, too. But this latest deal that they were doing here several years ago, if you were a previous champion and you go to Daytona, somebody give you a spare car to drive because you were a previous champion. They won't give Bobby Allison that win in that race that he won. There we go. Well, there, uh-huh. Okay, so they give these guys yeah. a credit for starting a Daytona 500, and they ain't qualified for it. Okay, so what's your opinion of the whole 85th? Bobby needs to get the win. Absolutely. Why not? I ran some of them short track deals and ran a baby grand car like at Winston-Salem. Well, Tiny Lund won races later that year at Hickory and North Wilkesboro in a 
Grand American Camaro, he is credited with those wins. His deal is was it the tiny Bowman deal? was it Bowman Gray? Yeah. In seventy one, he was in a Grand American Mustang, and for some reason, he's not given credit for that race victory. That race, yeah. He's given credit for a top five, top ten. Yep. He gets that credit, but he doesn't get credit for the victory. Yeah. Well, no, they need to give him the win. He won the he won the race. I mean, yeah, they need to give it to him. It's, I mean, ask the race fans. They're in the grandstand, and they'll tell you, you know. But but same deal is, like I'm saying, you know, they, they just put them guys in the race because they were a previous champion. So they didn't care if they qualified good or not. Dave, you chose to hang it up after running the 2002 Daytona 500. Why would you go to Daytona and not just retire at the end of the 2001 season? Uh, I don't know. Really, I like Daytona. I, I, I just I like racing, but I just didn't have the money to, to keep going. Yeah, you know, you were needing to be have available an airplane. Yeah, I couldn't even even think of what it cost <laughs> to service them things just to get them inspected. <laughs> yeah, let alone yeah. buying one. Yeah, and I and we just couldn't keep up. I mean, I mean, just take uh, New Hampshire for example. Them guys are back home, you know, before midnight, Sunday night. And we're, uh, my guys, and we're not getting home till Tuesday morning, Monday night, super late. And, we've, and we ain't been in a motel since Saturday night. I mean, we drove, you know. I mean, we, we used to run over and, um, and drive home. You know, that was a five-and-a-half-hour race. Right. And, and uh, drive all night. To get home, and we would un- we'd get home about nine or nine thirty in the morning. We'd unload that race car and work on it at the shop till six o'clock Monday evening. Then we would first come home and eat and go to sleep. Wow! And and my guys did that same thing. I mean, that's just what I, I guess the difference between the other little guys and me is I wanted to be competitive. The other little guys didn't race as hard as I raced. I, I know I had a reputation that well, Marcus is hard to pass. Well. I grew up racing in Wisconsin, and, and I worked hard and I raced hard, and um, we raced hard every lap right to the end, and, and that's what i done here. I didn't run people high out of the groove or off the track or nothing like that. I kept the car down low, out of their way, went out of the way to stay extra low and give them the whole damn racetrack, but I raced them hard every lap right to the end. That's just how I did do you still have the hot rod shop now, or are well, you spending most yeah, of your time hunting? My son-in-law is working at the shop, and, and but I'm not, I don't go there a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, I got all my equipment and stuff there. I go fabricate stuff now and then and stuff, but yeah, I still have the shop. Okay. I got a dump truck backhoe and stuff, and I, I stay busy, so I still got stuff that I got to build and weld and stuff like that. And all right. I built some deer stands, took to Wisconsin, put in the woods out of square metal tubing and stuff, so yeah. they'll, they'll last forever. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add? Anything? No, I just, uh, I still love the sport. It's not what it was. I, I, I you know, the, the guys that are in it, they're making a lot of money. I mean, hell, you take the two wins I had, like in uh, in um, 76, you know, Talladega, and the next week in Atlanta, and them two added together. I think last place at Martinsville pays more money today, but uh, but that's just how it was. I mean, we yeah. race because we love the sport. I still love the sport. I wish to see. I wish they could get it back again to where there was racing again. We raced hard all day. If there were ten really really good cars there, they were racing really hard. The next ten weren't as fast, but they were racing each other hard. The next ten was another group. And again, they weren't up front, but they were racing each other hard. And everybody on the racetrack was. Just about everybody was racing hard yeah. all day long. That's the difference. I think the aerodynamics, you know, has got the sport screwed up. They, they Somehow something there needs to be changed. I don't know exactly what. But it's like you can catch a guy, but you can't get by him. Because the car don't steer good. It picks a push up or whatever. And, um, you know, in the earlier days... That wasn't the case. We didn't have that problem. You had to manhandle that race car. We didn't even have power steering on them in them days. And when I came to NASCAR, the race cars weighed 3,900 pounds. <laughs> and I they was were a tanks. little guy. And them big Dodges were tough wow. to drive. Tough to drive. 
Dave, I have always been curious. The year 2000 was pretty bad in NASCAR. You know, we lost Adam Petty. We lost Kenny Irwin. We lost Tony Roper, each in the three national divisions. And Dale wasn't going to be told what kind of seat he had to run. He wasn't going to be told anything about a full-face helmet. He wasn't going to be told anything about a Hans device or anything like that. And he did a kind of an impromptu interview session at Richmond late that year, like September of that year. And you actually walked in on it, from what I understand. What Do you remember anything about that? And did you and Dale ever talk about safety? Well, I never agreed with his seat. When I would test the car, they'd put a, a seat in there, you know, that would fit me decent because I need to be comfortable to yeah. test the car. Not to, not anything to do with Dale's seat or nothing. Just I, to test the car and get the good right. feel, I needed to be comfortable in the seat. And uh, we never talked that much about it. But Dale's opinion is uh, a lot of them guys were candy asses and complaining about the safety stuff. And... I don't know how you I don't know how you weigh that out. Dale felt comfortable and safe in what he had and what he And had walked away from some pretty substantial wrecks. Yeah. yeah. I remember the Talladega deal. I remember his deal at Pocono when he went yeah. through the big Winston yeah. billboard yeah. and Bud yeah. Moore's car and stuff yeah. like that. So I don't think Dale had no fear about getting killed in a race car. Um so he was outspoken about it because he thought maybe them guys were going overboard. Um and that's one thing that I've always respected NASCAR for from day one was their concern about safety. They've done a fantastic job. And I, I can remember how did the window nut came about. There's a lot of people probably can't remember, but I remember. Uh, uh, Richard Petty? Well, maybe not actually. I mean, maybe Richard okay. spoke it up. But I think it started from an accident in an ARCA car at Daytona. Okay. All right. and, and I can't remember that driver, but I, I think he got killed. Or badly, badly hurt. And then somebody, maybe it was Richard, start talking about it or let's get window nets or something. But Well, I was talking about he flipped that car at Darlington in 1970. He yep. was basically halfway out of the car. Yep, I was right standing there. I had dropped out of the race and my pit was right there. But but I but I I think some of the original deal was what really put it in an effective guy. It was involved with a car in an ARCA race that they told Yeah. I guess if you ran the 2002 Daytona 500, you actually had to have a restraint device of some sort. What did you run? I had I had shoulder straps. I don't know. I know you recall the wreck yeah. between uh, Richard Petty and uh, Phil Bartow was involved in it, like in maybe '87, '88 at Daytona 500. Daytona, yeah, yeah down yeah. the front straightaway, right. and Richard's yeah. car kept going yeah. down. Yeah, Phil Bartow had shoulder straps on that tight hook to your helmets he had them on because again arca made their drivers wear them arca made their drivers wear like a horse collar and them shoulder straps it went under your shoulder and strapped to your helmet okay phil never got hurt and i recall ricky rudd's accident how bad black and blue his eyes were for so long and phil bartdahl had a you know that was a bad accident he didn't get bruised up he didn't his i had neck wasn't sore his eyes weren't black and blue he had them shoulder straps on we were preparing that car for him in our shop for helen ray and i remember them shoulder straps ever since that wreck that day i started using them shoulder straps on my myself so that's what i had okay and if you will look at my bad bad pocono wreck i had them shoulder straps on or i'd have got killed that day for sure you just look at that wreck once. That car hits that wall so hard, so fast. Brett Bodine hit me and spun me in the wall uh-huh. going into tunnel turn. And it hits the wall so hard it can't go through it or turn sideways. It, it slid straight up the wall. When it got above the wall, it started spinning. And that's what I was wearing was those straps. I didn't have no, no black and blue yeah. marks and no sore eyes. I was sore. My crew came and picked me up that night from the hospital in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, and I drove the van home so they could get some sleep to work on the race car when we got home. <laughs> but that's what I wore, you know. Yeah. So, so um, even those weren't required, but, but I wore those. But Dale did not. Yeah. I told Dale lots of times he should wear them. 
But, um, you know, I don't know. You know, that's a shame what happened, what happened, because he had many worse accidents than that. It's just one of those freak things that yeah. happened. I, I remember he said something about they should, didn't he say they should tie some, uh, Kerosene rags. rags. Yeah. Kerosene yeah. rags yeah. around their ankles yeah. so yeah. the ants wouldn't crawl off their legs and yeah. bite their candy ass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he just, he was comfortable with what he had and what he drove it. And that's just all it was, I guess. He didn't have no fear about getting killed in that race car. And his seat, you said that you didn't agree with that well, because I, it was real cushioned. Yeah. It was too, it was soft. It yeah. was cushiony. Yeah. yeah. And, and so. It would let you move around inside those harnesses a lot that you really didn't need to be doing in a wreck. You know, yeah. it, there was no way you could tighten a harness tight enough in them type of seats that we all had in 69 and 70 that, that you could be 100% nailed down to that seat. They were too soft. And what was his response when you would say something about it? Not to worry about his seat. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to argue with that logic. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I pretty much remember a lot of stuff about my career yet, and I guess I'm fortunate that well, I your, can. Well, your recall is amazing. Yeah, but um, I don't know if you talk with Larry McReynolds or Bobby uh, Hutchins, but when I tested that car, Dales, they couldn't believe what I could tell them about that race car. How so? In, in what respect? Well, like one time we were at, uh, they told a fourth testing for the 4th of July, and it was hot. I mean, blazing hot. And uh, it was about 25 quarter to 12. And the fire crew always closed the racetrack at 12 for lunch. And I made a run, and I come in and I told them, I said, I'm spinning the rear tire going in the third turn. Bobby Hutchins was the computer guy. And he said, how in the hell can you tell you're spinning the tire going in the third turn? I said, because I'm watching the tack, and I'm gaining 75 RPMs. And he said, there's no damn way you're watching the tack going in the third turn. I said, yeah, I am. I'm looking at it, and I'm telling you it's spinning a tire. I don't know if it's the right rear, or, but it's gaining RPMs. So I said, because they always, they always, um, would test and then qualify with an open gear because it was faster and I always would run a locker in the race for getting all out of the pits. I said, we need to change the gear and put the ratchet in the locker. And uh, somebody said, well, we ain't got time because it closed the racetrack. I said, I need to make the run right away, right now, back to back. Chocolate says, I can change that damn gear. He said, you jump out of the car and run out there and tell the fire crew that we're going to run again and we need to run. And Chocolate said, get the jack stand, do this, do that, you do, you grab, let's get this gear changed. And they changed that gear, and they got that thing done in about 10 or 12 minutes. I'm back in that car and strapped up. Fire crew agreed to leave the track open. I went back out and made that run, come back in, run about a tenth, tenth and a half quicker. Didn't see the tack gain RPMs going in the third turn. And Bobby Hutchins looked it up on the computer. He said, I'll be damned. He said to Larry, that son of a bitch. He's on the money, 75 RPMs. Yeah. He said, I don't know how the hell he can do it. <laughs> and Dale thanked but, you for victory lane. Yes, he did. That. Yes, he yeah. did. But I, stop and think about it, Rick. I did the IROC cars for 32 years. That's what kept me in business. The check I got from Roger Penske for doing the IROC cars. There were many, many weeks that I spent seven days in a race car a week. Hmm. Many, many. We, we take between Tess and Dale's car and the IROC cars and my car, there were lots and lots of weeks. I was in a race car seven days a week on them racetracks. We would, we would race Pocono and then we'd go to Indian test. I'd test my car and I'd test Dale's car. Yeah. And if that was the race that happened to be having an IROC race, I was doing the IROC cars too. <laughs> I mean, I got so many laps and not so many racetracks. It's amazing. <laughs> Because of them IROC cars. People don't know how hard. I, I give Jay Signori credit. I don't know that I'd have worked as hard on them IROC cars as he worked trying to get them cars perfect. But we had them cars many, many, many times within a tenth of each other. And that's damn hard to do. He'd go so far as to pull the engine 
out of the fastest car and put it in the slowest car, trying to get that slowest car as good as them other 11 race cars. Well, you got to respect that. I mean, because yeah. his deal was let's let the best driver win. Yes. Not the best car. Right. And, you you know, everybody said the black car was the best car. and He changed paint schemes on them race cars or paint jobs on them race cars. So the black car wasn't always the black car. That's how far he went to keep them cars equal. Yeah. When somebody would say, well, the black car is the best. Oh, the black car is the best. That was going on for a while. Yeah. He would repaint them some of those. <laughs> That's awesome. They worked hard on making that series, you know, yeah. like you said. Yeah. Try and get the best driver. And we worked hard trying to get the guys from the Indy cars comfortable in them yeah, cars. Yeah. And the Formula One guys, when we had them, they had a tough time in them cars. I mean, it's like getting in a damn tank alongside yeah. of them cars they drove. And they couldn't get used to that, being side by side and nose to tail. They just couldn't do it. It was tough. They weren't used to it. The IndyCar guys, I mean, like Bobby Rahal, he didn't like them damn IROC cars. He just couldn't yeah. get adjusted to them. Rick Mears, look, look how great a driver Rick Mears is, and he couldn't get super comfortable in them IROC cars. They just, it just... I mean, you're looking at a 1,300-pound car with 900 horsepower and a 3,600-pound car with 400 horsepower wow. and no good brakes. It was tough for them guys. So when we got a, one of them guys to win a race or a sprint car guy like Lazowski uh, or Kinzer, it's a pretty big deal for us guys to yeah. get them guys. Lazowski, he, he would come and test every day that we were testing the IRA car at that next race. Every Woody. day. Every, every, every day. Yeah. It got it got so we were at uh, Chicago, and um, I was running the, the best in, in our IROC cars, and Lazowski was, was trying to beat me all the time. And he figured out that if, if he could get on a set of scuffed tires right after lunch, for example, and he could maybe cut a faster lap than what I or Sauter was being able yeah. to do yeah. in the IROC cars. So we... We, would, we told him one day, we said, you know, Lazowski, we got a deal here in IROC. If you spin the car out testing, you got to buy us guys a steak. At <laughs> he said, I, I'll go for that. He said, I'm going to spin one of them out. Yeah. We went to lunch one day, and I scuffed a set of tires right before lunch. And when we come back from lunch, he jumped in that race car. That's the car he wanted to practice with right away yeah. after lunch. He went out there, and he was going to run better than I was, and he spun it out. And that night we went to a big steakhouse up there by the racetrack in Chicago. Yeah. Lazowski bought all of us a big T-bone. <laughs> I still got the chunk of tire yet. <laughs> I cut it out and I had it hanging on the wall at yeah. my place yeah. in Wisconsin. Yeah. Free steak on Lazowski. <laughs> <laughs> If you ever meet Sandy Estep at the racetrack, she's more than likely going to be wearing a Richard Petty t-shirt and a Richard Petty cap and whatever else she can find that has Richard Petty's face and or name on it. And our buddy Brian Kelb also has several awesome old school Richard Petty pieces in his inventory. Check that out on Instagram at Speedway Screens and also go to his website, speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And he does have several just amazing Richard Petty pieces, t-shirts from I guess the 1970s, 80s. Any Richard Petty fan, including Sandy, would be interested in some of those pieces. So again, check him out, Instagram at Speedway Screens and also Speedway tsj.etsy.com and when you check out enter scene s-c-e-n-e for a 10% discount well I know I know you don't remember this but when you had the Olive Garden sponsorship my godmother my best friend from high school his mom remains to this day the biggest NASCAR fan I've ever met. She loves Richard Petty, and a very, very, very close second was Harry Gant. And one year at Bristol, I think it was like 88, 87, 88, you and Harry got together at Bristol. Yep. And Harry wound up wrecking. Yep. 
And after that, Dave Marcus was just <laughs> Dave <laughs> Marcus. Dave Marcus was toast. I mean, you, you didn't speak Dave Marcus's name in her house yeah, during yeah. the race. I remember that deal with Harry. And that was when I was at scene, and you and I talked, and I told you that story, and you gave me some Olive Garden coupons to give her. And after that, I, I think there was a little bit of a truce. <laughs> you were okay. <laughs> well, you know, Harry and I talked about that deal. Yeah. It was a racing accident. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't go after him and try to yeah. spit him off. Yeah. Harry and I, we never, ever had a problem. Yeah. So, but yeah, I recall that deal. I, yeah. I don't recall maybe getting yeah. any coupons, but yeah. I recall a deal with her. Yeah. So, there were other people that were mad at me too from around here. Yeah. I don't exactly know how to start this segment, so I'll just go ahead and lay it on the line here. Sandy, you have been a race fan for, I guess, since the early 60s. Early 60s. Okay. Early 60s. And at some point, Dave Marcus came along. Yes. And at Bristol. At Br- Okay. Now we're getting into it. Um, (laughs) When I first became interested in the sport in 1989, I knew that there were at least a couple of drivers that you didn't particularly care for. One was Jeff Bodine. Oh, yes. And the other was Dave Marcus. Okay. Now, as our listeners have heard and maybe sort of formed an opinion, and he sounds like a nice guy. I went to his house. He's a very nice guy. I met his daughter. She's great. Met his wife. She's awesome. So what happened that okay. you have this thing against Dave Marcus? Okay. Harry Gant was leading at Bristol. Okay. Now, who is Harry Gant to you? He was my second favorite driver. Richard Petty was number one okay. always. All right. Then came Harry Gant. What would have happened if it had been Harry Gant to spin out Richard Petty? I really don't know. I hadn't oh, even thought of that. Now we're on no to something. Clue. What if it had been Richard Petty to spin out Harry Gant? Would that have been okay? Uh, probably to some point. And that would have just been a racing incident, you know. <laughs> just a racing incident. <laughs> okay. So, Dave Marcus, Harry Gant, Bristol. I believe it was 1988. I don't remember exactly which race it was, but Harry was leading, and Marcus was at least one, maybe more laps down. And when Harry went around Dave Marcus, they put him in the wall. I was not happy. I was very in- upset. Intentionally? Was it intentional on your part? Uh, I don't know. In retrospect, after listening to him on the first two segments of the podcast, I'd probably have to give him the benefit of the doubt on this and say he seems like a pretty nice guy, although I didn't think so at the time. <laughs> <laughs> But let's just say if I could have gotten out of the stands and across the track, Dave Marcus would not have left me alive. That's 1988, and then I get involved and interested in NASCAR the next year, and then I go to work for Winston Cup Scene, and at some point I relay this story to Dave Marcus. Right. Now, he told on me, people. <laughs> so you tell the story from there. At the time, you were working at the Shoney's corporate office. At the office. time, I was working at Shoney's corporate office, and every week in our paycheck, we got $15 worth of Shoney's bucks that we could use at Shoney's restaurants. And we'll get to the Shoney's coupons <clears throat> yes. in the second segment. And they were very, very important. Very important to Rick's <laughs> livelihood <laughs> and well-being. But I believe at the time, Dave Marcus' sponsor was Olive Garden. Being the generous-hearted person that I am, I gave Rick some Shoney's bucks to give to Dave Marcus, which he did. Now, I don't know how Dave took that, but evidently it was felt kindly toward me because he did get some coupons for Olive Garden, and he sent me some, so we just swapped sponsors there for a few minutes. Was that enough to kind of ease the wounds of... 1988 yes, I, didn't, I didn't hold it against okay. him too much. I, I let that go, you know, after a couple okay. of weeks, I let that go. But really, honestly, after listening to your podcast the last few times, uh, Dave seems like a pretty nice man. And I probably shouldn't have been that hard on him. But you know how race fans are. <laughs> well, I know how you are. We are single-minded. <laughs> and especially at that time, you got to remember, Harry was having really good seasons oh, during yes. that period. And as Dave told it, Leo Jackson Motorsports was located there in Asheville. Mm -hmm. 
And when Dave got into Harry, he created a little bit of friction with the folks there in Asheville because that's where he lives in, there in Arden, which is very close to Asheville. I was actually kind of surprised that Dave remembered the incident, first of all. Yeah, it's a racing incident yeah. as far as he's concerned. Yeah. And, but but he, fans look at things differently. Well, he remembered the whole thing. He remembered the whole <laughs> thing. So yeah, I think it hit pretty close to home. But when I told him about exchanging the coupons and everything, now listen. Dave Marcus is never going to turn down a free meal. Okay. That's the, <laughs> if you gave him Shoney's coupons, hey, he was on board with that. Hi, I'm Ray Evernham, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Well, Sandy, now that I have twisted your arm and both arms, <laughs> now that you're on the show, I want to get the full Sandy E. Step experience. First of all, how did you become interested in racing in the first place? My mother took me to a dirt track in Nashville when I was about five years old, and I fell in love with the winner of that race, Bob Ruther. Bob Ruther. Had the prettiest white teeth. And then after years of thinking about it, it was, they probably looked that white because of all the mud that was on his face. <laughs> but it was an interesting night for me. Um, I had a snow cone, and something happened along the track, and I jumped up, and the snow cone went right down a lady's back that was sitting in front of me. Now, to, in today's world, I would have probably been strung up. My mother would have been beaten to a pulp. But this lady was really, really nice. She was kind she even bought me another snow she cone. bought you the snow cone she bought me the second snow cone that i promptly dumped down her back <laughs> she still didn't get the back. second snow cone <laughs> the second snow cone <laughs> that was the only thing i remember about that race bob ruther's teeth and dumping those two snow cones on that lady and she was so nice and did not kill me and then later on as i got older and uh out on my own a little bit um Right after I got my driver's license and I was able to get around town on my own, I started going out to the Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway, and it was just Magic. my cup of tea. Yeah. My cup of tea. And you were saying earlier today that you actually changed jobs in yes. order to have more time on the weekends that you could actually go to races and travel right. to races. I worked at uh, South Central Bell. I was a telephone operator, and it was practically impossible to get weekends off. Uh, at that time, I was working split shift, and on Tuesday night, they had uh, figure eight races out at the fairgrounds. I would jump in the car and head that way and get caught by a train on 4th Avenue every single Tuesday night and miss the first half of the races. So I decided that that just wasn't going to work, and I transferred jobs to be a teletype operator in the downtown office so I could be off on weekends and go to the races. That's when my real racing career started. When I'd get off on Friday night, if there was a race anywhere within driving distance of Nashville, I was gone. Me, by myself, in my car, and I was gone. And you were talking about Grand National races mm -hmm. at that time? Any kind of races. It really didn't okay. matter. Yeah. I, did, I did enjoy going to the Grand National races, but I just loved racing, period. And I fell in love with Richard Petty. God, he was pretty. <laughs> oh, man, I'm telling you what. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting to the truth. Now you're getting to the truth. <laughs> the very first car I bought on my own was a Plymouth. Can and it was imagine? because of Richard. Because of Richard. Really? Absolutely because of Richard. What year would that have been? I bought a 64 Plymouth Fury. Wow. And I got it. Well, it came out in, November, I think, in November of 63 was when I bought mine. Okay. Oh, yes. I was a Plymouth person until I married a Pontiac man. <laughs> <laughs> And what was it about Richard Petty? Was it just because you thought he was good looking? I guess that's it. And he won, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that, that really sparked my interest in racing. And uh, at that time, you didn't have any racing on TV. You either went to the track or you didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Joe, you know that when I was in junior high, high school, I was a big baseball fan. Right. Collected baseball cards. 
I had no exposure whatsoever to NASCAR. I was aware of it. I had once traded a kid in elementary school in Alabama. I had once traded a kid for a picture that he had of Richard Petty. He had taken it on pit road at Talladega and I loved the car thought it was great but I didn't have an exposure to it like you obviously did what was it like to grow up in a NASCAR household at that time it it was a lot of fun really uh one of the things that I loved early on about the sport was the action and the intensity Plus, I had mom's stories about Richard Petty and David Pearson and Bobby Allison and all those other drivers at the fairgrounds where they were almost like one of the fans. There was so much interaction between the drivers and the fans themselves. Mom's got stories about sitting in uh, the stands with Linda Petty watching Richard race and making some inappropriate comments. (laughs) I just said if he belonged to me, I'd put him in a cage and charge people admission just to look at him. (laughs) See what I've had to put up with all these years. <laughs> and at, at the time, minor league sports were that yeah. way. But but yeah. ma- professional sports, you couldn't do that except for racing. And so I got to learn all about that and got to go to some races at the fairgrounds. And one of the big things was the entire family was race fans. Mom, dad, me, my sister, Jennifer. And, and not everybody liked the same drivers. No, and that was the great thing yeah. about it. In any other, any type of stick and ball sport, any sport except for tennis and golf, basically, you've got one team versus another. Racing, you had 40 different teams out there at the time because there were, well, maybe one or two multi-car teams when I first started getting interested in it. And so each of us, having that little streak that loves to argue just a bit every now and then amongst one another. Really? We, I have yeah. never noticed that. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, really? It's a family thing. <laughs> <laughs> It's an A-step thing. <laughs> Sarcasm is my first language. <laughs> and we just we just love to, you know, yeah. pick at each other yeah. in a fun way. Well, on Sunday, that was the one day we were all guaranteed to be together. Nobody oh, had absolutely. school. Nobody had yeah. work. Yeah. So we all gathered in front of the TV and watched racing. Everybody had their favorite driver, so we could all sit there and banter back and forth. Yeah. And it was just a really fun time. It was a bonding thing for us. To set the stage, Sandy was obviously Richard Petty, exactly. first and foremost. You were... Daryl Waltrip. Daryl Waltrip. Because mom and dad couldn't stand him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there goes my DW interview. (laughs) Now, I did like Richard Petty. It wasn't because I was forced to. I mean, he was... Well, how can you not? Such an ambassador for the sport. And the stories I'd heard about it, there was the one about the fan that followed him into the shower down at the fairgrounds, and he stopped and signed an autograph for the woman. (laughs) It was that that the the drivers knew that the fans that bought the tickets were the ones making sure they had a job. And they went that extra mile to do that. And I didn't see that in any other sport happening. And Joe Sr., Sandy's husband, and Joe's dad, Joe Sr. was an Earnhardt fan. Oh, come on, man. I think he did that just for pure meanness, just to be in on the argument. Probably. <laughs> who did Jennifer like? Uh, depended on who was the cutest at the time. Yeah, yeah I remember gender, uh, Jennifer. Whoever we were fussing most yes. about. Okay. All right. Yeah. She would side with that uh, about Earnhardt every now and then if she knew it would rile me and mom up. Yep. So that stage is set. You guys love racing, love NASCAR, but I could never understand it. As I said earlier, I was a huge baseball fan. If ever a kid has worshipped a baseball team. Cincinnati Reds. Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine. I'm of the era. Tony Perez, Joe Morgan, Johnny, Johnny Bench, Bench Dave Concepcion. Dave Concepcion, Pete Rose, all of them. Okay? So I love the Cincinnati Reds in general. In particular, Pete Rose to me, just he walked on water. Now, to say Pete Rose walked on water, (laughs) that that shows you what kind of blinders I had on. We knew there needed to be an intervention. (laughs) And this was in the late 80s. He had come back to the Cincinnati Reds as a manager. And then in 88, 89, he started going through his exposure as a gambler. And he bet on baseball and all that. And then finally in 1989, he got banned from the sport for good. So I needed a new passion. I needed a new, well, for lack of a better term, I needed a new obsession. (laughs) (laughs) And I came over to your house one Sunday afternoon just to hang out. And the next thing I know, we are watching the 1989 Daytona 500, (laughs) and the rest is history. I mean, I'm not the sort 
who can just be interested in something and say, oh, that's nice, and then go about my business doing something else. When I get interested in something, I dive in head first, and I truly do become, in a very real sense, I truly do become obsessed. So 1989, I become interested in racing, and I pick up at your house, Sandy, my very first copy of Winston Cup scene. Right. I had been taking it for several years, and I saved all my copies. <clears throat> yes, so, ma'am. Guess who got them? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you remember it. The moment that I picked it up and started thumbing through it, I said, I wonder what it would be like to write for them. And I don't remember that, yeah. but I can, I, I, I'm sure it happened. Because after that, it was just, it was his dream. He was going to do it. One way, come hell, high water, he was going to do it. <laughs> so that's 1989. Mm -hmm. 1990, I, you know, I'm watching races and going to races. And I go well, let's to my... back up a minute. What really attracted you to racing? What caught your interest? Other than four crazy people yelling at a television set. <laughs> <laughs> I have always been fascinated by ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I think it's extraordinary that a person can stand at home plate and face a 95-mile-an-hour fastball and hit it 400 feet. That's extraordinary. It's one of the hardest feats in all of sports. I've always been fascinated by the concept of human spaceflight. The Apollo program, the Saturn V launch vehicle was 363 feet tall. For all intents and purposes, it was 363 foot tall bomb. And three people climbed to the top of that thing and said, okay, somebody, light the fuse, let's go. And then the concept of somebody strapping themselves into a race car and mashing the gas all the way to the floorboard and turning left at Talladega, Daytona, Bristol, wherever, I think that's an extraordinary ability. And then layered on top of that, the passion that you had, how can you not become interested in it? Back then, you two were the two most passionate NASCAR fans I had ever met. And Sandy, today, you remain the most passionate NASCAR fan that I've ever met. As sure as I'm sitting here, everything that I've ever done in NASCAR has been with the thought in the back of my head, what would Sandy think? Would Sandy be interested in this? You have been my muse in NASCAR. <laughs> so I did have a purpose in life <laughs> besides raising two wonderful children. So I get interested in NASCAR 1989. 1990, I go to my first handful of cup races. And in 1991, my stupid hind end <laughs> <laughs> moves to North Carolina. And a few months later, I come rolling back into Nashville when things didn't work out. And then in 1992, I moved for good. And said, I'm going to chain myself to Deb Williams' desk until she <laughs> gives me a job. <laughs> well, That's what, folks? <laughs> I didn't actually have to do that, but I did tell Deb that I was going to do that. When I moved to North Carolina, and I've said this on the podcast before, it was rough going for quite a long time. My first race after I moved here for good was Martinsville. I slept in my car, snuck food out of the press box. I planned to do the same thing the next weekend in North Wilkesboro and got to the track on Friday and found out that they didn't serve food in the press box until Sunday. And that was rock bottom. Long story short, it was the weekend that I found out about a gig at a small community newspaper in Sparta, North Carolina. I got the job, stayed there two years. That was two of the most important years of my life. Number one, it's where I learned to stand on my own two feet. And also, it was where I learned journalism. I graduated from college with a degree in religion. I was going to be the next Billy Graham. And as is so painfully evident so often on this podcast, I'm not a great public speaker, but I've always been a writer. I mean, Joe, you yes. talked about it going back to junior high school. But when I was in Sparta working at the newspaper, Sandy, you <laughs> <laughs> you saved me from starving to death. <laughs> I don't know how many times because I would come back to Nashville to see my son, Richard, from my first marriage. And no, Richard, that name is not by coincidence. His full name is Richard Lee Houston. And Sandy, that's on you. <laughs> it is. It is. Sandy, wow. that's on you. So I would come back to Nashville, had no money. And every Sunday afternoon on the way back out of town to go back home to Sparta, 
I would come by your house and I would say, Sandy, uh, do you have any Shoney's coupons? And if you had Shoney's coupons, that meant that I, I got to eat on the way home. <laughs> Kids did not get to go to eat Shoney's. <laughs> Only Rick. And that was also an important development in your understanding of racing because you learned how to figure gas mileage to make sure you could get <laughs> here and back. Now, to set this stage, my car was a 1976 Chrysler Cordoba. It was literally snot green and rust. Nothing on that car worked. The gas gauge didn't work. The speedometer didn't work. The doors rattled like they were going to fall off. The radio didn't work, but the engine worked most of the time. I had that car for two years. Never once, ever, did I ever change the oil. (laughs) (laughs) But it got me back and forth to Nashville more than once. So that's what I drove back and forth to North Carolina and Sandy, if you had Shoney's coupons, that meant that I got to eat on the way home. If you didn't have any that particular time, that meant that all my money had to go towards gas to get home. Long story longer, I got a call from Deb Williams, and they said that they were going to be hiring a rider, and she asked me if I was interested. What kind of question was that? (laughs) After thinking about it for a week or two. Yeah, after thinking about it for a second or two, I got the job, and you two eventually... Went to some races with. Yes, I did. Went to quite a few. One of my fondest memories. I know what you're going to say. One of my fondest memories. You know how you're having a conversation with somebody and you get towards the end and you say something to the effect of, well, come and go with me. Okay. And bye. Okay. Well, we were having this conversation. I had called you. You had called me. I was in the office. I was sitting in my cubicle in the office at Charlotte. And we were talking about me going to Daytona. Mm -hmm. And got to the end of the conversation, and I said, well, just come on, go with me to Daytona. See you later. Love you. Bye. Ten minutes later, maybe 30, you called me back. (laughs) (laughs) And you said, you said, come and go with me. So I've made my plane reservations. Pick me up at the airport the day before you leave. (laughs) And you went to Daytona with me for two weeks. Okay, now let's back up some. You had asked me several times to go to Daytona. Okay. I never right. okay. I never really cared about going to Daytona. Yep. I don't know why. I don't like sand for one thing. Florida just didn't interest me. But on this particular occasion I thought, oh well, you know, he's begged enough. We'll do it. Oh, okay. I, oh, I beg. Okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> I called work. Arranged my vacation. So you went to Daytona as a favor to me. Huh? I went strictly as a favor to you, and I loved every minute. <laughs> okay, okay. Now we. That's now when we he asked me if, he, if I would be his godmother. He adopted me <laughs> as his godmother, and that was in February of two thousand and two. And that was when I was the Bush Series editor at Winston Cup Scene. So I had a few connections in the garage. Mm-hmm. Now, tell them what happened on race day. I got to ride in the pace car. Yes, you did. Yes, I did. And to this day, I can picture you (laughs) sitting on pit road and then standing on pit road. Yes. And then circling the pace car because I had talked to Carl Simmons, who was the NASCAR official Mm -hmm. who drove the second pace car on the pace laps. And I had talked to him about getting you in the pace car. He said, if I possibly can... It's a done deal, okay? If I possibly can. Right. Didn't know for sure. Right. So I can remember being in the press box, and I could see you down on pit road. You were circling. He told me to stand near that car. (laughs) Don't let it leave without me. And I didn't. (laughs) Right before they fired engines, he motioned you over. You got in. That is my fondest memory of being involved in that sport. I could see the grin on your face. From the press box. And I've got a photo of that. I do, too. And <laughs> It's my you, screensaver. Yeah. You can see yourself sitting in that pace car, and I believe it was Lyndon Amick on the road behind you. I believe so. And we were in also, the second pace car. Greg Biffle. Mm-hmm. We're right behind you. Yep. I got done with the race. That was 2002. I believe Junior won the race in the number three Richard Childress car. I have car. no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Dell Jr. won the race. I had to do the post-race interviews and sit in on all that. I did some running after the race. So after the race, it was probably three hours. 
I was a good three hours. Until I got back to the car. It was well after dark. You had already gone to the car, and you were still as giddy as a schoolgirl. You got it. I got I in was. that. I got in that car. <laughs> I got to do this and I got to do that. And Greg Wiffle and Lyndon Amick, I thought he was going to wreck us. Sorry, Lyndon. Hey, I was having a good time now. All right. So Sandy gets to ride in the pace car. I take you to the first St. Louis race. St. Louis race. I don't know what you'd done to piss me off. <laughs> so I take you to the first St. Louis race. Have you ever in your life been so hot except for this morning at graduation? Uh, once in my first trip to Talladega oh. was a race like that. But yeah, St. Louis was miserable. I did not know that St. Louis Speedway was located in Hades. <laughs> Anyone that remembers this race will remember the first major race at the track. It was so hot, the pavement was coming up. Yes. Yeah, and this being a standalone Bush event, didn't have the Companion Cup event, so you had thinner staff. And you handed me a notebook and a pencil and a headset, and said, "All right, go down on the pit road, and I might need you to get some quotes for me." Okay. <laughs> and that's what I did. I ran up now. He would holler for people. Uh, we're there for the race on Saturday, and it's miserable hot. Yeah. But I'm managing to find shade here and there. Rick comes over the headset and says, hey, CBS needs somebody up here to help them count laps. Can you do it? Sure. I get to go upstairs in the press box. It's going to be great. What they didn't tell me was the air conditioner had gone out in the press box, and it was about 100 degrees hotter up there than it was outside. <laughs> so they put a headset on me, and I'm sitting here in a puddle of sweat with all this electronics around me count, uh, hollering out laps and lap leaders. But it was so wow. cool because I remember getting home, and we, of course— had the VCR going to tape the race, and I got to see my name fly by at the very end of the credits. Did you really? I did. I don't know that. I remember that. I don't remember it either. Well, I remember us going to a race somewhere. I think it was another race in St. Louis, and it was the weekend of the very first Daytona night race, the summer race. And you and I had purposely not listened to the radio because we were driving back, right. so we were going to watch the race at Sandy's house. <laughs> And so we're trying not to figure out who won. We sit down, we get our E-step chili, we get our iced tea, we sit down, and your mama says, boy, that Jeff Gordon did a hell of a job winning that race. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't tell me they didn't want to know. Spoiler alert. We could be here all night telling stories, and I would love to get them all recorded, you know, just for posterity. But I will say this. I worked for Winston Cup Scene for about nine years, and then I got the big idea to go to work for NASCAR, and let's just say <laughs> that that worked out about as well as a fart in a diving helmet. <laughs> I don't know why you didn't talk me out of it. I bit my tongue. I, In fact, if you'll remember, I told you, Rick, follow your heart, not the money. He didn't listen. <sighs> You're a very wise woman. <laughs> 11 months to the day after I start work at NASCAR, NASCAR invites me to no longer work for them. Okay? Yeah, that was a tough day. I cleaned out my office, put it all in my truck, and drove away. Obviously, my first thought was, how am I going to tell Jeannie? You know, how is she going to respond? With God as my witness, my second thought was, what am I going to tell Sandy? (laughs) (laughs) What am I going to tell Sandy? I just thank you two for getting me interested in a sport that has obviously been a passion of mine for so long. And without you two, I wouldn't be here right now. That's the ball game. That's the God's honest truth. I'm glad we were able to play a part, but believe me, you have repaid us many, many times. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But anyway, Sandy, thank you for taking part. I hope it wasn't too painful. (laughs) No, I suffered through. (laughs) You know I'd do anything for you. And for the first time on this podcast, we have a sound person in Joe (laughs) who knows what in the world they're doing. Steve and I just sit there and look at each other. When there's a sound problem, it's like, you know what to do? No. You know what to do? No. Well, I mean, you show me all these bells and whistles on this soundboard that have been here all the time. I mean, you can make it sound like we're in a echo chamber you can make it sound rick he went to school for that
listeners, if you've heard this podcast, you know it's going to be almost impossible to tie a bow on this episode. So I'm just going to ask this. Joe, best race, most memorable moment in the sport? Uh, 92 Atlanta, Richard Petty's last race. Alan Kowicki wins the championship. Uh, you know, a big fan of the underdog uh, that weekend. Jeff Gordon came out of nowhere. Uh, it uh, Just a convergence okay. of all sorts of forces that made it just a very memorable weekend. I Sandy. have to agree. I watched Jeff Gordon. Never had seen him before. And I sat there looking. I said, who is that kid? What in the heck is he doing? I could not believe the talent that I was seeing that day. And then... I watched my all-time favorite retire. As Joe Under- said, the underdog won. To me, that was the greatest day in racing. Somebody should write a book about that race. They really <laughs> should, shouldn't they? <laughs> There's an idea. The I'll, greatest NASCAR race, would that be a good title? I think, NASCAR, like I think NASCAR's That's greatest race. Yeah, okay. I think yeah. That, yeah, I yeah. think that How works. How about that? I think you got something there. <laughs> if I could throw in a second favorite, and this was just a personal one for me, I, it was one of the earlier races that you took me to in Atlanta. Yeah, because you were still working on really tight budget, so we were just going to camp in the car and ended up getting a hotel room that still had chalk outlines on the floor. <laughs> but <laughs> because of your connections in the pits, I got to work with Jimmy Means' crew in that race. Really? Yes. Okay. They, they were short a couple of guys, and they said, "Can you lift a ninety-pound gas can?" I'm like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> I don't remember that. I don't. I don't think the car lasted until the first scheduled yeah. pit stop. Yeah. No, I take that back. We did make one scheduled pit stop that I remember. But other than that, just again, just because you had done some work for Jimmy Meehan's crew, and they were short somebody, and you had to cover the race. Okay. All right. That's pretty cool. Now, the 92 Hooters 500, Mm -hmm. that was after I had gone to work for the newspaper in Sparta. Mm -hmm. The newspaper in Sparta was owned by the newspaper in North Wilkesboro. And from time to time, they would send people to different races certainly there in north wilkesboro because that was their hometown racetrack but when they found out that i was interested in racing they gave me i will in my life i will never forget this it was the first time i'd ever actually been paid to go to the racetrack i stopped by the office in north wilkesboro on the way to atlanta and they gave me a check for three hundred dollars I thought I was freaking rich. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I thought I had won the lottery because I had $300 in my pocket at the racetrack. <laughs> there were a lot of firsts that day. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I will, last. I will never forget that. I will never, ever forget that. Again, we could talk all night, and I would dearly love to, but it's been a long day. Sandy, thank you. Thank you, Rick. Joe, thank you. Thank you. Love you guys very much. Love you too, man.